Well, it's a privilege to have received an invitation to speak at the Atheist and Agnostic Student Society of the University of Louisville. As you've seen in your bulletin that was provided beforehand, my assignment for this presentation is to address the following challenge. Christianity slowed Western intellectual progress by replacing rational thought with mystery and authority. Christianity slowed Western intellectual progress by replacing rational thought with mystery and authority. That is the challenge that I've been tasked with addressing tonight. And this is a challenge that has received ample affirmation in academic and popular level contexts. For example, in his work, The Closing of the Western Mind, The Rise and the Rise of Faith and the Fall of Reason, Charles Freeman, the author of that book, articulates our present challenge in this manner. Here's a direct quote from that work by Freeman. He, he says, In the 4th and 5th century A.D., the Western intellectual progress made by the Greeks was destroyed by the political and religious forces which made up the highest authoritarian government of the late Roman Empire. By the 5th century... Not only had rational thought been suppressed, but there was a substitution for it of mystery, magic, and authority. A substitution which drew heavily on irrational elements of pagan society that had never been extinguished. And he concludes by saying in this context, What cannot be doubted, argues Freeman, is how effectively the rational tradition of the ancient Greco-Roman world had been eradicated by the 4th and 5th centuries, end quote. I would wager that most of you here today would agree with the reasoning employed by the likes of Charles Freeman, that Christianity and organized religion in general is a hindrance to intellectual progress in the Western world. Therefore, as a Christian... It's my desire that you will genuinely consider my best effort to offer a rebuttal to Freeman's argumentation during our time together today. And by extension, it's my sincere desire that this presentation will give you much to think about regarding a Christian perspective on rational thought. So with this in mind, by way of introduction, let's readdress today's challenge in the form of a question. Did Christianity slow Western intellectual progress by replacing rational thought with mystery and authority. Well, for starters, in light of this challenge, it's important for me to acknowledge that throughout the past 2,000 years, many self-identifying Christians have been prone to substitute rational thought with mystery and authority. Whether speaking in reference to the rampant practice of asceticism and mysticism during the patristic and medieval eras of church history, or in studying the enormous influence that the visible church levied upon the state between the 4th and 16th centuries AD, there are justifiable grounds for criticizing self-identifying Christians from previous generations. Stated differently... There are justifiable grounds for claiming that throughout church history, the visible church was often drawn to mysticism and authoritarian leadership propensities. Those are true statements. Those are true observations from church history. But even in making these historical concessions, 
And in recognizing that people of every ideological persuasion has their fair share of faults, I would submit to you that Christianity did not slow Western intellectual progress. I would submit to you that Christianity did not replace rational thought with mystery and authority. Rather, it is Christianity that makes rationality possible in the first place. In fact, I would contend that every intellectual advancement that has been made throughout human history has only been accomplished by virtue of presupposing the truthfulness of Christianity. Allow me to explain how I believe this to be the case. The Bible testifies that God created man for the purpose of reflecting his character through caring for this world. Stated differently, man has been hardwired to move and function in ways that are analogous to the Creator. It is for this reason that at every point in a human being's life, they demonstrate how they presuppose the God of Christianity. Even if a person professes with their lips to not believe in God or in Christianity as a whole, their lifestyle shows stark evidence to the contrary. Whether a Christian or a non-Christian, all people presuppose the existence of laws of logic, such as the law of non-contradiction, the uniformity of nature and the uniformity of the laws of nature, such as the laws of science, the laws of mathematics, and so forth. All human beings presuppose the reality of their human sense perception, and all human beings presuppose the existence of moral absolutes. Laws of logic, uniformity of nature and the laws of nature, the reliability and the reality of human sensory perception, and the existence of moral absolutes. Those are fundamental presuppositions that every human being at all times and all places presuppose. Every single day of your life and every single day of my life, we abide by these basic presuppositions about the nature of reality. And out of every available worldview system, only Christianity can account for why man has these presuppositions and why these presuppositions are true. Let me show you that from the Word of God. In passages like Colossians 2.3 and 2 Timothy 2.13, We find that the Bible provides a universal, unchanging, and objective basis for the existence of laws of logic. In texts like Genesis 9, verses 1 to 17, and Hebrews 1, 3, we discover how Scripture teaches that God upholds all things and sustains all things in His created order by the word of His power. And as a result, He enables His creatures to trust that nature will remain consistent, that nature will remain uniform. In verses like 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 15, it is said that all of mankind will someday be held accountable for the deeds they do in their bodies. And as such, Christianity therefore provides an objective basis for trusting in the reliability of human sense perception. If we're going to have to give an account for the deeds we committed in our body, that presupposes that we're going to be able to remember the deeds we committed in our bodies, that we would have had experience with our senses during our human life. (laughs) Furthermore, when considering Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 to 17 and Romans chapter 2 verses 14 to 16, we find that the Bible provides an absolute standard for morality. And that absolute standard has been written on the conscience of the human being. That's the testimony of Scripture. 
So Christianity not only explains why mankind possesses these inherent beliefs about the nature of reality, but it also explains why those inherent beliefs about reality are true. Therefore, reasoning itself would not be possible without presupposing the core tenets of Christianity that we've just discussed today about one's understanding of the nature of reality. And furthermore, we could take it a step further, any intellectual progress that mankind has ever made was accomplished by virtue of presupposing and utilizing the faculties that make intellectual progress possible in the first place. As we mentioned moments ago, Laws of logic being one of those key presuppositions, objective laws of nature, uniformity of nature, and the reliability of human sense perception. Those are core, basic presuppositions that find their roots in the Christian worldview and are only possible because the Christian worldview, as revealed in Scripture, as contained in Scripture, is true. So rationality and intellectual progress are only possible on the basis of presupposing core tenets of Christianity and on the basis that these core tenets of Christianity are true. When considering any of the historical examples that portray Christianity as replacing rational thought with mystery and authority, we find that those are just examples of how those particular Christians failed to live consistently with their own worldview. And in the final analysis, a failure to live consistently with one's worldview does not in and of itself negate the truthfulness of that worldview. In fact, if we're going to honestly and objectively consider the competing claims of non-Christian and Christian worldviews, each worldview must be examined on its own terms in order to determine whether or not it's true or false. And when we take the time to evaluate the various worldview options that exist in this world, we must ask questions along the following lines. Which worldview can objectively account for laws of logic, uniformity of nature, reliability of human sense perception, moral absolutes, and even other fundamental presuppositions that humanity takes for granted on a regular basis? We must ask the question, which worldview is internally self-authenticating? That is to say, which worldview does not need to appeal to any external or higher standards in order to be validated? And which worldview makes rationality and intellectual progress possible, which was the crux of our challenge for today's presentation. I would humbly submit to you that these questions, these questions are answered definitively and objectively by Christianity. Christianity can provide cogent answers to these questions, and I hope that today's brief presentation has given you much to think about in regard to the philosophical viability of the Christian faith, of which I am a proponent of. I want to thank you again for the invitation to speak at today's meeting. I hope to be able to answer any questions that you may have before the end of the day. May God richly bless each and every one of you in your studies. Thank you very much. Eleven minutes, twenty-five seconds. We're good to go. How did you physically do that? Hey, you know, uh, just how to get it within the twelve hundred word count. Anything's possible at that point. Yeah. I mean, there's more that can be said, but that's that's uh, 
that's a good place to, to start. <laughs> I'm going to vent right now during our time of Q&A, uh, Q our question and answer time. So that was 11 minutes and 25 seconds, and I used some jargon there. Some of you who were here last week for Jason Wiles' two-part series on presuppositional apologetics, some of you guys are familiar with those terms just because we heard some of them used last week. I've also used some of these terms in previous lessons and previous discussions as well. Um, so hopefully some of the terms that are maybe a little bit more philosophical than you're used to are starting to, to take root in your thinking. But if it's still new, that's totally fine. That's why we're here tonight. We're going to go over really the totality of what I just presented, and we're going to take it uh, apart piece by piece. We're going to make sure everybody's on the same page as to what I argued in this presentation. As you guys know, y'all were pretending to be students that were at the University of Louisville, and y'all were part of the Atheist and Agnostic Student Society. So you guys were a group of people who held to a worldview of naturalism. That would have been your worldview as an atheist or an agnostic. Naturalism is just the belief that everything in reality has natural causes, and by necessary consequences, everything in reality can ultimately be reduced to atoms and molecules, to matter, as it were. That was the worldview I was addressing from a biblical perspective. Now, I'm glad, I'm glad to know that. I'm glad to know you're persuaded that he, that, uh, that probably would not have happened. I probably would have gotten booed off stage uh, in an actual context. Maybe not. Uh, if these were. Me and Lily were thinking, like, should we apply for booing? If these were college students, they probably would have did a polite clap and, and just tried to rip me to shreds during uh, the QA time. But let's look at some of these questions. Let's look at some of these questions to make sure that y'all were tracking with what I said. Because you guys, especially Hannah, Lily in just another year, Charlie in just another year, you guys are going to face these sorts of challenges to your faith. You're going to hear stuff like Charles Freeman articulated in that quote, that Christianity and organized religion, by necessary extension, slowed rational and intellectual development. That basically human civilization entered into the dark ages around the time that Christ came into the world and has and, and, and had basically a 15 or 1600 year period in the dark ages and then came along the enlightenment and then man finally picked up where it left off and we're finally back on the right track. We're on a good trajectory now. Michael. Did you no, he's not. What? But yeah, um, that, that gives you guys a little bit more food for thought here. See you guys. Yeah, that gives you guys a little bit more food for thought uh, as you eat your food tonight um, about what worldview we were dealing with here and why this is even an important issue to discuss. So first question on page two of your handouts, bottom of page two are the questions for group discussion, which is where they're normally located on a weekly basis. Question one, why do you think people tend to see rational thought as being in opposition to Christianity, specifically, and other forms of organized religion broadly? So think about Charles Freeman. 
intellectual guy has a PhD, he's a renowned historian, and he sees Christians like you and me and proponents of organized religion as irrational, illogical. When people look like him, unbelievers in academia, sophisticated intellects, people who are writing peer-reviewed journals and academic literature, they see Christians and they see religious adherents of other faiths and they say, they are the problem in this world. They're irrational. They're illogical. Why do you think there's a dichotomy? Why is there a dichotomy between rationality and Christianity, or rationality and faith, if you want to use the term broadly. What are some reasons, do you think, that dichotomy exists? I think, like, people tend to think that, like, just, like, settle for no answers. Like, just like, I don't know and I don't want to. Yeah, I just accept that by faith. Hey, there's a term you're going to learn tonight. It's called fideism, F-I-D-E-I-S-M, fideism. It means I just accept it all by faith. I have no rational basis for what I believe. I have no idea really what I believe. I've got some cliches that I parrot because that's what I do as a Christian or as a Muslim or as a Jew or whatever religion they hold to. And as Hannah was saying, what you just articulated, they, they really don't know what they believe. And, they, and, they, and some people that hold to that view, they just don't care what they believe. Hey, I've got my faith. I don't really know how to think critically about my faith in light of other challenges that exist. I'm just going to accept it by blind faith and move on. That sounds really pious, but it's foolish. It's foolish. It's lazy. That's right. What else? Does anyone else have any thoughts on group discussion question one? Why else do you think people may view religious adherence as irrational? Simple-minded, foolish, whatever adjective you want to use. I think because people choose that super pious um, stance of like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna believe it and not look any further into it and just take it all at face value. Yeah. So there's no incentive to dive in, like really learn the history, which is where you learn, like there's real. History, architectural evidence, all sorts of like right. real tangible evidence that you would be connected to if you did bother to really study. Mm-hmm. And so it turns into like it eventually spins into a fairy tale. Right. You can be they can argue against that and convince you it's a fairy tale because you don't have. You don't have a foundation, right? You don't know the roots. You don't have a foundation. It's a fairy tale because you don't know any That's right. That's good. Um, you know, Charles Freeman, I, uh, the book that I quoted from was one of the reading assignments for uh, my doctoral seminar in July that I'm going to have to go, uh, go to at Southern. And I read Freeman, and he is brilliant on philosophy. He's brilliant on history. And then I start reading him trying to articulate what Christians believe. And I read that, and I'm like, have you ever read the Bible before? It's just fascinating. You have brilliant scholars who are amazing in every other discipline. And then when it comes to critiquing Christians or other religions, they erect straw men. They don't really know deep down what those faiths believe. And frankly, as it pertains to Christianity on the basis of 1 Corinthians 1, they don't have spiritual discernment. It's foolishness to them because they're perishing. 
So those are all really good thoughts, guys. Uh, Hannah and um, Samantha, thank you for sharing those thoughts uh, with question one. Let's look at number two now. Question number two. How does the non, and this is a very important question, how does the non-Christian prove Christianity to be true through their actions, but deny Christianity with their lips? You catch that part of the presentation, it's also referenced in your handouts. How does non-Christians prove Christianity to be true with their actions, but they deny it with their lips, Matt? Oh, that's good. Yes. That's a good. That's a good insight there. Whit. Um, whenever without uh, Christianity for God, like you couldn't, there's nothing would be true or false. Like, there like, wouldn't be an objective standard. Would, yeah. 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 And they basically by saying something is right or wrong, you're referring to Christianity. Yeah. I'm. I, I like where you're going there, and I like Mac as well. What, what you had to say. Um, Let's, let's make it practical to what we were just doing, though. Maybe this will make it a little bit more concrete here. Um, so we did, so I addressed atheists and agnostics, right? Naturalists. Everything can be boiled down to atoms and molecules and matter. Every effect has a natural cause. Everything can be explained through uh, natural explanations, anti-supernatural bias. That's, that's naturalism broadly defined. So let's take that worldview to its logical conclusion. If everything is matter, atoms, chemicals, and so on, why should it be wrong to murder? Why should it be wrong to commit pedophilia, to rape somebody? Why is it wrong to steal? If we're all just matter and atoms and chemicals and molecules and so on, if we take that worldview to its logical conclusion, there's no basis for being mad about anything. There's no basis for objective standards of right and wrong. And yet, if you watch a naturalist, you take their wallet from them, you steal their car, they're going to be pretty upset. But in their worldview, there's no basis for them being upset. So when they get upset about their car being stolen or about their wallet being stolen, they are presupposing objective standards of morality. They're presupposing that it's wrong to steal. Does that sound familiar? Where does it say that it's wrong to steal? Who said that first? The Ten Commandments, right? That, and what do we find that the Ten Commandments are? They're written on the conscience of all of mankind. So when the naturalist is mad about their wallet or their car being stolen, they're acting as if... Christianity is true, and that only makes sense because they've been created in the image of God, and His law, His commandments have been written on their conscience. How about reasoning, right? We talked about laws of logic. How many of you guys have heard somebody say a contradiction before? They contradict themselves. You've heard people contradict themselves, right? Well, the law of non-contradiction, right, the fact that two things that are contrary to one another can't be true... That presupposes that there's truth and false, and that and falsehood. And that gets to what Whit was saying earlier. If we take the naturalist worldview to its logical end, truth is arbitrary. It's subjective. 
Ultimately, man's going to argue amongst himself about what's true and what's false. But when they say that there is truth and there is falsehood, they have ipso facto affirmed the validity of the Christian faith. Because God is true. And Colossians 2.3 says that all knowledge has been deposited, has been hidden, has been made manifest in Christ. Any affirmation of truth, any affirmation of the laws of logic prove or vindicate the validity of Christianity. So that's a good um, way of kind of piecing together how the unbeliever's a walking contradiction. On the one hand, with his lips, he professes that Christianity is false, but with his actions, he lives in such a way that demonstrates as one who's been created in the image of God, Christianity is true and that truth is inescapable. Sai, did you have something? Oh, no, just scratching your head. Okay, well, number three, and these questions are building off each other. Question three. See if you guys are paying attention. I'm trying to hopefully lead you guys into answers to these questions. How is rationality and how are all forms of intellectual progress impossible without presupposing the truthfulness of Christianity? How is rationality possible without presupposing, or impossible, how is rationality impossible without presupposing the truthfulness of Christianity? Michael. Because of the, uh, I can get the bio guy said with the, uh, the uh, continuity. Yeah, laws of logic, right? Right? So if there are laws of logic, if there are reasoning, objective standards out there that dictate truth from falsehood, and those truths are rooted and grounded in Christianity, then in order to make rational progress, in order to engage in reasoning, Christianity must be true, right? If, if, if the laws of logic, if the basis for objective standards of reasoning is rooted and grounded in Christianity, then you must live and act in such a way that shows Christianity to be true in order to reason cogently in order to reason consistently. You could say it like this. If there are no laws of logic, how is reasoning possible? If there's no basis for believing that nature and laws of nature are uniform, how can we have confidence to engage in science, math, and so on? How many of you guys know the answer to what 2 plus 2 equals? What's 2 plus 2 equal? Math. Yeah, right? Pretty, okay, okay. Now let me ask you this. How do you know 2 plus 2 will equal 4 tomorrow? Okay, so that's, that, that's, a, good, that's a good answer. Okay, let's, let's, focus on, let's focus on Kaylee's answer. 2 plus 2 will equal 4. Hey, guys, this is an important point. Kaylee, Kaylee raised a good point. We can have confidence that 2 plus 2 equals 4 because 2 plus 2 has always equaled 4 in the past. But my friends, on that same line of reasoning, how, on what basis do we have to know that we're going to die at some point? We've never died before. We've always been alive. So, when, so here's the point I'm making. Uh, in order to have confidence that past experience will continue on into the future, you assume that nature is consistent. 
that it's uniform. And in order to assume that nature is consistent and uniform, you have no basis for making such an affirmation apart from presupposing the legitimacy of Christianity. The Noahic Covenant, Genesis 9. God promises that in this age, He's not only not going to flood the earth again, but He's also going to maintain and sustain laws of nature. So according to the Noahic Covenant, 2 plus 2 will always equal 4 because God is going to sustain that, that reality, that mathematical reality. The scientific method, gravity, things of that nature. Why will they remain the same in the future as they have been in the past? Well, it's because God's promised that they will. He's going to uphold His creation in an ordinary fashion. Now, obviously, God as sovereign and as supernatural can accomplish His purpose by overriding the creation that He's made to perform a miracle, right? A miracle, by definition, is to perform something that is not naturalistic in origin. It's supernatural. So God can do that. But ordinarily, through His acts of providence in governing the world He's created, He does so in a way that's consistent, in a way that's uniform. Does that make sense? I see some glazed eyes. It's all good, though. We're learning. We're growing. This is important stuff. Number four. And this, this right here is, um, is really important in light of people who hold to a view of pragmatism. And pragmatism, essentially, in a nutshell, is, well, if it's not successful, or if it's, uh, if it's unable to be modeled consistently, then it just must not be true. So question four is, is kind of a frontal assault against pragmatism or against pragmatic thinking. Question four, why is it important to not dismiss a worldview simply because adherents of that worldview don't consistently live out its convictions? Why is it wrong to say, hey, that person can't live his worldview out consistently so that ipso facto means that the worldview is false? Michael? Because people aren't perfect. Because people aren't perfect. Well, that's profound. Um, I know it really is. No, no, no. Guys, that's the right answer. Can any of us lift the Christian worldview out consistently? What if I told you that every time you sin, you fail to live out your worldview convictions consistently? Just like when the unbeliever denies Christianity with their lips, but lives in such a way that shows they presuppose the Christian worldview to be true, thereby contradicting their own espoused worldview, so also do we do the same. We profess Christianity with our lips, and then when we commit sin, we live in such a way as if the worldview is not true, and that's why we need the grace of God and the Gospel. The Gospel overcomes our inability to live out our worldview with perfect consistency. And because we're sinners, as Michael pointed out, nobody can live out their worldview consistently. Only Jesus Christ has ever perfectly lived out a worldview in consistency. Or in a consistent way, not inconsistently, but in a consistent way. Christ is the only one that's ever done it. So when you evaluate a worldview, you have to evaluate the worldview claims in and of itself. And that brings us to question five. Michael, you stole the thunder there. Question five. Building off of that, though, think about this, guys. 
If a worldview is not deemed false because its adherents can't live it out consistently, question five is a good follow-up. Why does the legitimacy or the validity or the truthfulness of a worldview ultimately hinge upon whether or not it's internally self-authenticated? So if we're going to judge a worldview to be true or false based on the internal testimony or the internal evidence of that worldview... Why is it so important for that worldview to be internally self-authenticated? Sai? Well, because stuff that isn't true will contradict itself at some point or another. But the Bible has no contradictions. Right. That's good. That's a good, that's a good train of thought there. Very, very nice. Think about this. If I have to go appeal to an external standard to prove my ultimate standard or my basis for understanding reality, my worldview, if I've got to go somewhere outside of it to authenticate it, what have I just done? Where have I placed my ultimate authority or my ultimate place of faith? Size. On that external source, right? So if Christianity, as revealed in Scripture, is self-authenticating, the Bible will self-authenticate itself. Now, the, argue, or the critic may argue, well, that's circular reasoning. Well, when it comes to an ultimate standard, circular reasoning is impossible. Because as soon as you leave arguing for the validity of your ultimate standard, as soon as you try to argue, uh, or as soon as you try to appeal to something outside of your ultimate standard to prove that it's ultimate, you've undermined its ultimacy and you've made this other thing the ultimate standard. Let me give you an example of how circular reasoning is impossible when dealing with ultimate standards. What must you presuppose about the laws of logic? Or, I kind of just gave that away. Um, what do you have to do to prove the laws of logic? You have to believe that they exist in order to prove that they're true. Right? The laws that you presuppose the laws of logic at the outset of validating the laws of logic. And there's other things as well rooted and grounded in the Christian worldview that you presuppose before you can ultimately go and evaluate. Such as the uniformity of nature. I watched all of you guys come in here. I didn't see one of you guys run into that room afraid that the oxygen wasn't going to be sufficient in this room. You believe that the oxygen in here was going to be sufficient to help you breathe. When you sat down in your chair, you didn't hold on for dear life thinking you were going to float to the ceiling because you believed that gravity was going to keep you in that spot as it has in the past. In doing so, whether wittingly or unwittingly, you demonstrate that you've presupposed the Christian worldview regarding the uniformity of nature to be true. That's a powerful argument that we need to use when interacting with unbelievers. We, it, it's that... Answer, don't answer strategy. You remember Jason Lyle showed us this in Proverbs. Let me pull up the verse. Very good verse to use. Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Don't adopt the unbeliever's worldview for yourself, lest you follow in his foolishness. And his unbelief. But, verse 5, answer a fool as his folly deserves that he not be wise in his own eyes. 
So on the one hand, don't embrace the worldview of the unbeliever lest you fall into the folly that that unbeliever is modeling in their life. But at the same time, show the unbeliever, hey, let me put myself in your shoes. Let me adopt your worldview for a second and show you how foolish this is intellectually and philosophically. It's not consistent with the world God has created. And of course, we need to be loving and gracious when we do those sorts of things. But we need to do them nonetheless. Proverbs 26, 4-5, great passage for apologetics, which is what we're dealing with right now. Any thoughts or questions before we close and eat and watch basketball and all that fun stuff that you guys are probably just chomping at the bit to go do? You'd be surprised you've only been going for 35 minutes, so under normal circumstances, I'd be about maybe 60% done with my sermon. So. <laughs> Only at camp. Only at camp. I know what day it is. Do you all have any que- I know you all have questions, and this is the time to ask. I know you guys don't understand everything I just threw at you guys, which is okay. That's why we're doing this. This is the time to ask questions. No questions. So you guys think you can just... Rip off some presuppositional apologetics at school tomorrow. No, baby. I think I need to pull it over. Pull it over a little bit? I Googled it. I was thinking that we're not going to do it. I actually saw that. I was going to call him. I was like, I'll give it You called me up. Well, guys, here's what I would encourage you to do then. Two points of encouragement, okay? Take your handouts home. As you have opportunity, read through it. This is a very elementary level introduction to um, th- this particular way of defending the faith. It's very, as Dr. Lyle said on the uh, two-part presentation we watched last week, this, you don't have to be a genius to do this apologetic method. It just takes practice. If you want to be an evidential apologist, you need to know a lot. If you want to be a classical apologist, you need to know a lot of philosophy. If you want to be a presuppositional apologist, you need to just be able to spot logical fallacies and use your Bible well. This is probably the easiest methodology for ordinary Christians like you and me to use on a regular basis. It's easy to track. And some people would argue it's most biblical, but we won't go down that rabbit trail today. So, um, encouragement number one, reread that uh, document I gave you. Um, Again, if you have questions at any time, as always, feel free to email me. Uh, or, or talk to me in person, whatever is best for you. Encouragement number two, um, if you want a good introduction to apologetics, particularly the method that we just studied last week and tonight, uh, Dr. Jason Lyle, again, guy that we watched last week, he wrote a book called The Ultimate Proof of Creation. And the book, though specifically arguing for a particular view of creation, it's replete with presuppositional apologetics written for uh, you know, beginners in this area. So it could be really useful, ultimate proof for creation. Uh, and then anything written by Greg Bonson on apologetics will take it a little bit further. Um, and so as you get more familiar with presuppositional apologetics, Greg Bonson's a good resource to use, uh, particularly his book, Always Ready. Um, pro- probably the standard book uh, for presuppositional apologetics that you can get. By who? Uh, by Greg Bonson. And then if any of you guys go to seminary, or girls, uh, go to Bible college, um, 
Get into Cornelius Van Til, but uh, do not start with him. Uh, do not start with him, or you'll you might never want to talk about apologetics ever again. Um, he's a hard guy to understand. But um, yeah, that's all I had for you guys. I'm really grateful um, for this time of study. Again, I know we came to fellowship and eat and watch basketball, but hopefully um, this was at least encouraging and. Um, Interesting, maybe in some respects. Maybe, maybe it was boring, but uh, for some of you, I'm glad though that we were able to do it tonight. Let me pray to close this, and then I have one more announcement to make uh, before we, um, you know, spend time together for the rest of the night. So let's pray. Father, you are with your Son and Holy Spirit, the God of Truth, the Blessed Trinity, and it is only by your grace alone that we have come to know and embrace the truthfulness of the Christian worldview. We're not any better than anybody who has rejected the truth of Christianity. We didn't earn or deserve your grace or your forgiveness for our sin. You lavished it upon us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Father. I pray that reality would encourage us, would would help us to remember that there was nothing intrinsically valuable or lovely in us, and yet you set your redeeming love upon us. Oh God, may we set our love upon all those in our lives, whether they be those who are near and dear to us, or whether they be our adversaries, or anything in between. May we model your love and your truth to all those you place in our lives to bear witness to. I thank you for every young man and young woman in here tonight, as well as all the adult leaders that are here. I thank you for the work you're doing in their life, and for the impact you've allowed them to make at FBC Edna and for the impact you've allowed them to make in my life and Bell's life over the past year and a half or so. Father, I pray that you would richly bless these people here tonight and those who could not be with us as well. I pray you would draw them to yourself to greater degrees of intimacy and fellowship with you so that they can experience the fullness of joy that is freely offered to those who are united to Christ by faith. We love you, God, and we give you thanks for tonight. We pray for your blessing on the rest of this time together. And we offer this to you in prayer in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.